0: Um, For those of you that were not here yesterday, uh, I mean, sorry, did I say yesterday? My goodness, my brain. I meant last week. Those of us that were not here last week, um, there are three things I want to point out um, that we talked about last week. Um, For our introduction to the book, we talked about our identity in Christ, right? Which is, our identity is in Christ. And then secondly, we talked about our holiness. What does it mean for us to be holy as God's people? And we talk about our perspective, which is to have a perspective of grace. So we talked about those three things. And now the rest of the book is going to kind of um, be predicated on those things. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you go to, if you look at chapters one through three, if you've read through that, and by the way, I would encourage you, read a chapter a day, you'll get through the entire book. Um, by the end of the week. Chapters one through three is all about our identity in Christ. And then if you go to chapter four, you'll notice the word therefore. And then the rest of the book is all about our holiness. How do we live out our identity in Christ? And it's a fascinating read. um, And the Ephesians become a fascinating book. If you look at it in light of that. So the first three chapters all about who, who we are in Christ. And then chapters four through six, how do we live that out in the world? Um, and so that's kind of like the overall dynamic of the book. And so now with that, let's, let's read this book and then we're gonna, talk, we're gonna read uh, the first 14 verses and then we're gonna dive in as we take up a, a super important topic that I think, and let me go it on a limb. I, I really think if you understand what we're gonna be dealing with today, it will completely revolutionize how you look at your faith and how you look at others. I I truly believe that. It's that powerful because I know it did for me. And if God can do that in my life, I'm sure he can do it to yours as well. So with that said, let's go to our Lord and Uh, let's uh, look at this text. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glorious grace. Well, all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much indeed for your saving grace and the power of the gospel. I thank you that the power of the gospel, the efficacy of the gospel does not depend on us and how well we uh, give the gospel or how much of the gospel we believe I thank you that you are sovereign. And because of that, like Paul, we can rejoice. Bless us all now as we take in and breathe deeply your word. May it truly change us and continue to change us. In Jesus' precious holy name, amen and amen. Got to turn my mic on, I'm sorry. I thought I was loud enough, apparently I wasn't. Hey, I want to tell you a little story, and and it's very helpful for understanding this text. When I, when I first, um, when I met my wife, uh, she wasn't my wife then, of course, she was, uh, we were like, kind of just talking, and, um, and I remember when we, when we started to get serious, she had to meet my mother, right? Now, that was gonna be a challenge because my mother was in the Bahamas, and so I said, hey, uh, we'll, we'll call, and, and, you know, and you can meet her, and then you guys could talk. And I remember being nervous because I'm like, oh man, this has to go well. And so I was coaching her up. I was telling her like, hon, you know, don't stay away from this, say this, don't say this. You know, all the little jitters that you experience when, when your soon to be girlfriend or spouse or whatever meets your parents. And so I give, her, I give her the phone, so I call my parents. I, I call my mother. I give her the phone, and then my wife takes the phone, and she's super nice, and she's listening, and she's saying, ah and then a panic came over her face. And then she, like, put her hand over the mic, and she said, I don't understand a word she's saying. LAUGHTER And and seriously, of of all the things that I forgot, I forgot that my mother has the thickest Jamaican slash Bahamian accent in the world. (laughs) And and my wife was so kind and so nice. She was trying to listen. She was trying to pay attention. But man, she was like, uh, like, I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. And I looked at her and I said, honey, just follow the verbs. Because if you could get the verbs, you could understand exactly what she's saying. And she'll tell you herself, that actually did help. Now, why did I tell you that story? Because if you read verse 3 through 14 of Paul, you wonder, what is going on? I mean, this is one big, long, run-on sentence. How do we even begin to understand what Paul is saying? I mean, he's talking about the place of your glorious grace. He's talking about how much he loves Jesus. I mean, Paul stops being a Presbyterian for a little bit, and he starts being a Pentecostal. And he just goes unhinged, right, at the prospect of what Christ has done for him. He cannot contain it. Uh, Scott Finch, he's not here, but he had the best tagline about these verses. He said, look, it's almost like Paul took a big breath and didn't shut up for like 10 verses. (laughs) And that's exactly what we see here. So how do we make sense of this long, winding, beautiful extortion of who Christ is and his redemptive work for us? Follow the... So we're going to follow the verbs. Now, look, I'm not going to give you all the verbs. I'm just going to give you a few and you can write these down. So if you're taking notes, underline these. The first one, right? And it's actually the first verb in this passage is found in verse number four. And that is he chose us. That's the first one. The second one in verse number seven is in him. We have redemption. And then the next one is found in verse number eight. And it's the word lavished. Then the next one is in verse number 9, which is set forth. And then another one is found in verse number 13, and that's sealed. You got those? All right, now look up at me, and I just want you to circle the word chose. He chose us. That's the only verb that we're going to look at today. Okay? We're not going to go through all of them. I'm going to leave that for you. But I'm just going to... Look at one of them, and that's the word chose. Now, why is that? Here's why is that. Uh, Arthur Pink, who is a scholar, said this. He said, election is the root of all blessings, the spring of every mercy that the soul receives. If election is taken away, everything is taken away. Now, what is he saying? Because this is so important. Everything you see in this passage begins with this first verb in verse number four, and it's the word chose. Now, some of you are looking at me like, Pastor, no, seriously, I'm sure there's another verb before that, no, and you have to take my word from that, for that, right? The principal verb in this passage is at the beginning of verse number four, chosen, and everything else flows from that. Notice, Paul says that our 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 holiness and blamelessness flows out of the fact that we're chosen. Our predestination is, flows out of the fact that we're chosen. Our redemption and forgiveness of sins in verse number seven flows over the fact that we're um, chosen. Our inheritance that we have in Christ, verse number eleven, and down to verse number fourteen flows out of the fact that we're chosen, and then for, then the fact that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise in verse number thirteen flows out of the fact that we're chosen. Everything rises and falls on the fact that we are chosen or elected by Christ. Now, let me pause here and say this. This doctrine, I want to be careful here. For the rest of the sermon, I want to pastor and shepherd your hearts. I mean, I always do that, but I really want to be careful to do that for this reason. There are so many people, when you speak of the doctrine of election or being chosen, use that as a club Or as a battering ram. And I want to be careful because I don't want to do that today. You know, when I became a Christian, I became a Christian and I didn't understand the doctrine of election. And by the way, you don't have to become, you don't have to understand the doctrine of election in order to become a Christian. But I will say this. In order for you to become a mature Christian and understand your faith, you need to understand this doctrine. So I'm not wasting my time here, and I don't want to waste your time. I want to tell you this, when you understand that you are chosen by God, everything changes for you. And I'm going to show you that today. But I also know this, when this doctrine is expounded, as it's found in the Bible, there are so many people that have questions. Pastor Dennis, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? And I want to answer some of those questions today and objections. But more than anything else, I want you to understand this doctrine because when you understand this doctrine, your whole entire world, I think, changes because it's that powerful. It's that meaningful. All right, so let's begin. What does it mean to be chosen by God? What does it mean to be chosen by God? Here's the definition that I want to give you that God takes the initiative, God Himself takes the initiative to save those who cannot save save themselves, bring them out of darkness into life, completely independent of their actions or decisions. That's what it means to be chosen. That it's God that takes the initiative in your salvation. To, to, to save those who are unable to save themselves, and to bring them out of darkness into His mar, marvelous light, completely separate of their actions or decisions. That's what it means to be chosen by God. Everybody got that? That's what it means to be chosen by God. Now, why is this uh, such... You know, you might be sitting there, Pastor, why is this such uh debated doctrine why is some some people you know when they when they hear this doctrine they get upset and they get angry we're going to get in that for a little bit but i want to set a proper context for understanding that because on on the surface that's just theology and that could seem cold and that could seem unfeeling but you have to understand how powerful this doctrine is and let me give you an example of why at least to these, this church in Ephesus, this doctrine was so powerful. Notice with me in verse number four, Paul says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the purpose of you being chosen by God to be holy and blameless. Now, why is this so important? For this reason, The people that Paul is speaking to, those two adjectives didn't describe them. Those two adjectives did not describe them. He's talking to Gentiles, and he's just trying to describe them what their status before God is now. And the thing about these Gentiles is holy and blameless did not in any way describe who they were. In fact, the exact opposite. They were immoral and corrupt. And Paul says, No, 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 you don't understand. You're chosen by God. That's who you are. Because they lived in a culture, they lived in a time that no one would choose them. No one would choose them. They lived in a culture and time where Gentiles were rejected outside of the kingdom. Nobody would choose them because they were immoral, they were sinners. And so Paul is talking to them now and saying, no, you don't understand. Now God has chosen you. Now here's the glorious part of that doctrine. We live in what is known as an upside down kingdom when it comes to Christianity. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. In our society, we are not in the business of choosing the weak, are we? I mean, uh, th- all of you inside here today who are who normally choose, like right? you're the boss, and you normally choose candidates for your job, do you go out and choose the weakest candidate? No. When you want a plumber, do you go out and choose the weakest plumber? No. Look, I, I sometimes played sports, right? Do you always pick the weakest person on your team to be on your team? Those of you that play sports, you know. No, of course you don't. I remember when I was a kid, we we played this awful game, and sometimes I see it as well on our playground. You all know exactly where I'm going with this. It would be like uh, 20 of us, and we're lining up to play basketball, and the two best players would stand by, and they would start picking people, you know? And because I wasn't the best, right? I, I always got picked towards the last, and I dreaded that game. Because as people were being chosen, I'm like, what? what? You know, I'm, I'm surely a better than that guy. I remember it felt like people who were on crutches were getting picked before me, right? <laughs> I'm like, these, these people are, like, deformed, and they're getting picked before me. And, and so, what, so we have that in our mindset. Like, we understand. We live in a world... Where the best is not all, the best always gets picked in front of the weakest. That's the society we grew up in. And you know what? For many of us, we feel the sting of that, don't we not? You know, if you're dating someone, you pick the best person you could date. You don't do charity dating. You don't. Like, let's be honest. We're in church. We can be honest, right? If you're going to the restaurant, don't you want to go to the best restaurant you can go? If you're playing on a team, don't you want to play with the best players? Look, we live in a world where we choose the best. Chances are you're wearing the best clothes that you can wear. You're going to the best school that you could go to. You're in the best job that you could possibly have right now. See, we're used to choosing the best. But one of the things about the gospel that's so countercultural. One of the things about the gospel that's so amazing, one of the things about the gospel that completely upends our reality is this. God is not always in the business of choosing the best. In fact, the exact opposite. He often chooses the weakest. It's a profound doctrine. But There's some of us... um, We've watched the, anybody watch the series, The Chosen? Yeah, there's a few of us. Now, I know it's not for everybody. And there's some of us in here today said, you know, we're not going to watch it because of second commandment issues. And that's fine. That's fine. Uh, I had a friend, I wasn't going to watch it either, but I had a friend who said, Dennis, you have to watch it. We were back. I was back in Pensacola. He's like, you have to watch this thing and let me know what you thought of it. And so I turned it on and I began to watch it. And of all the things I could pick at and say, ah, that's not quite right. That's not quite true. One of the things that astonished me is that they got the doctrine of election right. It's in the name. The chosen. They got the doctrine of election right. And notice, notice how the intentionality of the people that Jesus chose in the, in the New Testament. Mary Magdalene, someone full of demons. He came to her and chose her. She didn't come to him. Notice Matthew, despised by his countrymen, who was a tax collector. He didn't go to Jesus. Jesus came to him. Notice Nathaniel, who was a skeptic and even insulted Jesus. He said, can anything good come out of Galilee or Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can you imagine that fool? How do you mean? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Of course, Jesus came out of Nazareth. And so here he is in all his pride and arrogance, a skeptic, insulting Jesus. And Jesus came to him and said, I want you to be with me. What about the woman at the well who was promiscuous? Jesus came and looked for her. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble. But watch this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no one might boast in the presence of God. Let that sink in for a moment. Notice what Paul says again in verse four, four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Beloved, look at your calling. Look at your heart. And I meet so many people that wonder, can God truly save me with all my skepticism, with all my sin, with all my uh, promiscuity? with my mental health issues, with all my fears. Beloved, he doesn't just save you. He delights in saving you. It's his joy to save you. So that no flesh might glory in his presence. That's what, that's the principal thing, by the way, the Bible teaches about the doctrine of election, that it's towards the weak and the frail. So that no flesh might glory in his presence. Now there's some of you, I said that, and you have some questions. I could tell. You're looking at me, and you're saying, well, Pastor Dennis, I have some objections. And here here are some of the objections that I know you have towards that doctrine, that beautiful doctrine. The first one is this. Pastor Dennis, that just doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound fair. Why does God choose some people and not others? And so what, what what do I say towards that? Here's what I say towards that. You're right, that's not fair. Um, I agree with you. That's not fair. But that is grace. And let me me help you a little bit, because this is so important. If you don't understand this distinction, because this distinction is the difference in your salvation. It's not fair, it's grace. Notice this passage, how many times Paul talks about grace. Over and over again... Paul says in verse number six, that everything God does in salvation is to the praise of his glorious grace. And then in verse number seven, the riches of his grace. He goes over and over again. He talks about the grace of God, the richness of the grace of God, the power of the grace of God. Why does he do that? Notice Paul doesn't say to the praise of his glorious fairness. He says, the praise to the glorious grace. Now, what's the difference between fairness and grace? Fairness is built on what you deserve. Grace is you getting something you didn't deserve. And so you're right. Your salvation is not predicated on fairness. Because if your salvation was predicated on fairness, then none of us would be saved. If your salvation was predicated on the fact that you got what you deserve, which is what fairness is, then none of us could claim the promises of Scripture. The reason why you and I could claim the promises of Scripture isn't because God dealt with us fairly. It's because God dealt with us with grace. That's why the superlatives that Paul used to describe grace is that he lavished on us. Literally, he graced us with grace. That's the power of this text. That's what Paul is saying here. His grace is glorious. His grace is majestic. Uh, a great example of this is in the story of um, the prodigal son. Everybody remember the, part of the story of the prodigal son? The, the prodigal was in the muck and the mire, and he was eating the soup. And you remember what he said? He came to his senses, and he said, you know what? I'm going to leave here, and I'm going to go uh, to my father's house. And I'll become a hired servant, right? And so he leaves to go to become a hired servant. And what happens? Did he receive him as a hired servant? How did he receive him? As a son. He threw him a big, big party. Now, listen to me. Even you and I who have come to our senses. I know that Jesus is our Lord still struggle with grace. Grace just like that prodigal son. See, we, we still want God to deal with us fairly. We still believe that if we pray every day, we still believe that if we read our Bible, we still believe that if we do all the right things, God now is mandated to deal with us in a fair way. But the scriptures tell us over and over again, God doesn't deal with us in a fair way. He deals with us according to his grace. That's the power of the gospel. And if you get that wrong, then you get the gospel wrong. Beloved, he deals with you according to grace. Now here's the second objection that you and I would have from time to time. Why doesn't God choose everyone? Now, if God's in the business of choosing. Why doesn't he choose everyone? Why doesn't he choose? Why does he choose some people and not others? And the answer to that is, I don't know. Actually, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it at all. Is that the final answer? No. Because Paul actually does something better for us. Notice how Paul connects the reality of God's will and God's character. This is beautiful. If you notice in this text, in verse number one, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And then in verse number five, he talks about, uh, according to the purpose of his will. And then in verse number 11, he talks about, um, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So he talks about the will of God in choosing us, but notice at the same time, he talks about the attributes of God in verse number, uh, you see verse number four, he talks about in love, God predestined us. Then he talks about the fact that in wisdom, God, God, uh, God brings us into the kingdom. Verse number eight, over and over, he talks about the grace of God. Notice how he takes the will of God, what God does. Then he takes the attributes of God, his grace and his mercy, and he puts them together. Why does he do that? For this reason. Because when we don't understand the works of God, we could always trust the character of God. Do you remember when Job had everything taken away from him? Job, Job lost his, um, all of his uh, family, except his wife. Job lost, um, all of his stuff, like all of his, uh, animals. He lost his home. He lost everything. What did Job say? Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. What is the third line? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why do you think Job did that? I'll tell you why Job did that. Because despite what God allowed happen to happen to Job, Job trusted in God's character. He trusted in God's character. Because Job understands this. We don't always understand the works of God. I don't understand why God doesn't choose everyone. But I know this. Based on his character, he's a good God. He's a merciful God. He's an incredible God. And I, my trust and my faith isn't based on my understanding, but it's based solely on the fact that I know God is good. And I hope that's where you rest your faith and trust. Not in our understanding of the doctrine of election, but purely based on the fact that God is good. Here's the third objection that people normally give. Pastor Dennis, if that's true, what happens to my free will? Don't I get to choose? And the people who asked that, I said, absolutely, you get to choose. Because God never does anything to our choosing mechanism when he brings us into the kingdom. He does something to our nature. And again, these distinctions matter so much. It's one that I've given in Sunday school several times. So my Sunday school folks need to forgive me because I need to give it one more time. Here's the distinction between your choosing and your nature. If you take—and this isn't new to me, by the way—this is something well worn within Christianity to try to explain this. But here's how it works: If you take a lion and you put in front of a lion a big bowl of salad, and then you put in front of the lion a big, a big juicy steak, which one would the lion choose? Anybody? Steak. Steak every time. Now, why would the lion choose steak? It's not because we conditioned his choices. It's because of his nature. The lion's nature is to eat meat, not salad. And so could he eat salad? Yes, he could. But that's not in his nature to do it. Nothing happened to his choosing mechanism. There's something within the lion that that makes him run to the piece of steak. So what, when we say this, when we say what happens to our free will, I tell people nothing actually happens to your free will. You could still choose. The problem is when we're born in trespasses and sin, we don't choose God. You don't choose God. That's not in your nature to choose God. What God has to do is change your nature, change you from the inside. That's why Paul over and over connects the will of God with the character of God. That's why when Paul talks about God choosing us, he's not just choosing us at random, but he's actually changing our nature. Now, here's the final thing that I want to give you today, and it's this. Pastor Dennis, if it's true that we choose God, if it's true that we're sealed until the day of redemption, if it's true that we've been predestined, then doesn't this kill our incentive to holiness and witnessing? Doesn't that kill that? And the answer to that question is, no, it does not kill it. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. Paul says this, for the love of Christ controls us. What does he mean by the love of Christ? He means the electing love of Christ. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and rose again. Listen to me. If you are chosen by God, it doesn't kill the incentive of you living holy and righteous. It doesn't kill your incentive for evangelizing others. In fact, Paul says it actually incites it. Inflames it. In fact, according to this text, Paul says it leads us to praise. It leads us to passionately pursuing Christ. Because now you're no longer living for yourself. You've been living for the one that chose you and redeemed you and set you aside. Now, I want to end by telling you this. Why is this doctrine so transformative? I've told you what it is. I've dealt with some objections. Now let me just tell you why this doctrine is so transformative. When I first became a Christian, when I first became a Christian, I was the hero of my story. I believed. I went out there and witnessed. I went out there and read my Bible. I went out there and did everything I was supposed to do. And it wore me out. And I almost lost my fate as a result of it. Because everything depended on me. Everything depended on me. How good I was. How how well I dressed. Everything was about me. But when I understand that I was chosen by God. And therefore my salvation had nothing to do with me. Then I realized that God became the hero of my story. Now, I don't live by the faith that I have. I live by the grace of God that he has put in me. And if you understand that principle, it will radically change your life. Because so many Christians are living to, uh, to please God and to please others. But when you realize that salvation is purely by grace and that God changes you, now you live... Not to please others, but ultimately to please the one who chose you. That's the power behind these verses. And I want to encourage you, as you look at the doctrine of election, as you look at this reality that God chose you, may it wash over you. And and may, like Paul, it causes you to rejoice. Rejoice, not in what you've done, but in Christ has done for you. Father, we thank you for the doctrine of election. We thank you that you don't choose, uh, that you, we didn't choose you, but you chose us. And because you chose us, Lord, you give us the power to recognize who you are and to live in light of your glorious reality. Lord, I praise you today because we saw the doctrine of election happen. Lord, you chose Patrick before the foundation of the world, independent of anything that he did. And we gave you praise for that today in this service. We give you praise for all of us because we couldn't choose you unless you chose us first. May that doctrine resonate with us and cause us to live holy and and passionate lives. In Jesus' name, amen.